1881, approximately 20 years before Freud published his landmark work, The Interpretation of Dreams, an American, William James, published a landmark paper that began uh, the psychological revolution. Rational cognitive conscious thought is not at the epicenter of human behavior. In fact, our conscious thought that activates behavior is just one small little part of a mind that is actually operated by essentially subconscious and unconscious impulses that are entirely either beyond our control or to the degree we control them, we can override them, but we don't actually create them. We don't actually author or are the volitional cause of so much of our behavior. In William James's amazing paper for the time, he notes that when you're walking through the woods and you hear a sound, a shuffling, that sounds like it might be a bear, before you become aware there might be a bear, I better run. In fact, you already go unconsciously into the fight, flight, or freeze. That much faster than thought are the impulses to survive, which already put you in the, I better get the hell out of here. Your legs, your blood goes down to the legs. You go into the posture of somebody who's going to run, and you have the surge of adrenaline. And that precedes the awareness that, oh, maybe there's a bear there. The same when you're walking and you see a form that a stick looks like a snake and you jump. That startle reflex, again, is pre-conscious. You don't wait to act until you think. You don't govern uh, much of the uh, survival behaviors through thought. They're actually activated by pre-conscious uh, impulses. And in fact, thought comes very, very late in human behavioral processes. In fact, literally a century later in um, Benjamin Labette's work that validated uh, William James's proposition, he found that human conscious thought happens almost a full half a second after impulses that push us to defend ourselves, become aggressive, shut down. The, so many of our behaviors are activated and are already in process before we even have a thought that tells us what's going on. Now this would all be amazing in and of itself, but actually what's truly, to me, startling is that this observation actually occurred 2,500 years ago. The Buddha, in a profound teaching called the Paticca Samapada, which lies at the very heart of the Dharma, says that before we have thought, upadana and craving, tanha, we have what he calls feelings, embodied, somatic, physiological impulses that prepare the body either to be, to, essentially the Buddha said they're feelings of comfort or discomfort, and that depending upon which feeling you're in, you have associated behaviors and thoughts that arise. It's a little bit like when you go to a restaurant and you look at the menu and there's certain foods that are available at lunch and other foods that are available at dinner. 
And so depending upon what body state you're in, if you're tense and defended and feel attacked, there's a certain level of behaviors that you'll do. You'll tighten, you'll send blood to the outer limbs, you'll stop digesting food, you'll become panicky and look for a threat. And all of the behaviors and then the thoughts, oh my God, what's going on? Why am I here? How could I get out of here? How could I get rid of this person I'm talking to? All of the thoughts and behaviors follow from the fast circuits of the brain which create the core physiological emotional state of discomfort and I have to get out of here. Likewise, the Buddha said there's also positive physiological states which he called Sukha Vedana, negative states or Dukkha Vedana. Those are pretty easy to remember. So Sukha Vedana are the states of elation and joy and happiness, the feeling of your shoulders lightening and your belly softening and a smile coming on your face. And those create what Barbara Fredrickson, the great um, psychologist, or a contemporary psychologist, calls broaden and build behaviors. So when we're happy, when we feel happy, positive states, then we can act out um, positive behaviors. We can become friendly. We listen better. We open to uh, other people's uh, words. We relax. We receive. And we can develop, she says, new behaviors when we're in positive physiological states. So depending upon the body, what the body is feeling, the emotional core components of each experience, that determines how we behave not our thoughts. Our thoughts, Benjamin Labette showed, only can override really bad impulses. So you're meeting your partner's parents for the first time, and they're triggering you, and you really want to upend the table and scream and run out. <coughs> Maybe you wouldn't want to do that, but suppose you had that impulse. You can override it. For some reason, every time I'm in the theater and it gets really quiet and everybody gets hushed, I want to do something really loud and wacky. I don't know why I get that impulse. It's not, ah! Just because I'm insane, I guess. Uh, but I override that impulse. So we can override impulses, but we can't actually create them. In fact, uh, Labette noted from his research that we don't have free will, we have free won't, which I thought was clever of him. Feelings, it turns out, are far more influential over behavior than our thoughts are. Our thoughts can say no, but it's our feelings that direct us to either shut down, leave, attack, push away what's going on, or they set the tone to welcome, open up, connect. In fact, our feelings are pushing us in directions that are often extremely extremely useful for our survival. Human beings are social beings, and it's our emotional feelings that are activated by the midbrain and the right hemisphere that reward us for emotionally connecting with other people in an authentic way. When we feel really seen, when we feel really comfortable with people, when we feel safe, our bodies relax. But when we feel that somebody might reject us, that someone might judge or shame or ignore or in some way um, disregard us, 
it's set in our social, in the right anterior cingulate cortex, which is the social center of the brain. Uh, that switches on, uh, was I saying the negative, or was I saying the positive? Well, either way, the both responses, when you feel connected, you feel happy emotions, that's work of the right anterior cingulate. So your emotions, your gut feelings are pushing you to connect, and that's due to the fact that human beings survive because of the fact we connect. We are a social species. We don't have any other great skill as human beings other than the fact that we can connect in ways that other species can, through language and through emotion. So the feelings are constantly pushing us to further these core social needs. But meanwhile, there's another part of the brain, the left hemisphere, that's actually trying to accumulate, trying to win over approval, reputations, financial gain, financial security, objects that bring short-term pleasure. While the right hemisphere speaks to us through the physiological feelings that are very fast circuits, the left develops these agendas of how do I get things that will make me alone as an isolated being more financially secure. So it goes about happiness and security in a very different way. Whereas the feelings want to connect based on expressing our emotions and the left is far more likely to produce a show to present ourselves in ways that we believe other people will love us. In psychology, it's known as the self-concept or the ego. It's a set of beliefs, not just the ego, but the superego and ego work together to create a series of stories about who I am. All the things you th that you believe you need to achieve in the world to be loved and rewarded. It doesn't in any way care about you being authentic. It doesn't want you to show all those pesky negative emotions. It believes that you should always be self-reliant, strong, confident, never make mistakes, always have the answer. You should always have the upper hand in relationships. You should never ever be seen as needy. All the things that your parents, your peer groups, everything you've seen modeled for you on TV are the stuff from which you build your self-concept. Your self-concept is based on what Bandura called social modeling. You look at what other people do to get love and you decide, okay, I better do that. And meanwhile, what we'll call our feelings or our felt experience have a completely different agenda. They just simply want us to express all the width and variety of our natural spontaneous emotions and be seen for the spontaneous arising and passing of feelings. So there's a discrepancy between the self-concept, which is constructed out of beliefs, and based on social modeling and cultural means, and the felt, organic, spontaneous self that's comprised of emotions. The self-concept is based on thought, 
and ideas. The felt experience is based on feelings and emotions. A totally different over time agenda. At a certain crucial age, we begin to experience the feeling part that doesn't fit and play along with the self-concept as threatening. And we suppress all the feelings that will be, we believe will make other people ridicule us. If we grow up in a staunchly heterosexual society uh, or in a family that um, punishes any same-sex impulses, then if we feel those natural emotions and impulses, we'll suppress them in a desperate attempt to get love and get approval. If we grow up in a family where we're punished for uh, asking for help and rewarded for being self-reliant, then we'll we will repress all the impulses that want to be vulnerable and connect with other people. All the parts of ourselves that want to be, want to let go and have somebody else help us. The emotions and impulses we begin to repress sometimes as early as four or five or six years of age. We use our intellect and defense mechanisms to repress these emotions and feelings. And the longer they stay repressed, the more they become essentially dysfunctional over time because they never adapt with our changing capabilities. So if in my family, I grew up with a very violent alcoholic father who out of the blue when I was 12 suddenly became a Buddhist, a pacifistic Buddhist. And, but all of the coping mechanisms that I developed to survive the violence remained in place. And the emotions that I suppressed so that I wouldn't wind up terrified at the hands of my father, they remained repressed for many, 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 many years afterwards. And so when I first started to do the heavy-duty therapy and Buddhist insight work 20-plus years ago, the emotions that were repressed, the feeling in, for me, the feeling of disappointment and sadness that I had repressed, it came up in overwhelming ways because for me to show sadness around a drunken Russian hyper-toxic masculine guy like my dad would have, would have been horrible. So the sadness when it started to appear was completely dysregulated. What happens is our self-concept, the story of who we should be to survive in the world, which is, you know, efficient, perfect, uh, funny, confident, begins to s diverge over the, from the felt experience, which is not always confident, not always funny, not always perfect, makes mistakes, needs help, needs to be vulnerable, needs to be able to express all of that. So can we guess, can anybody guess what fills in that void between the two? Anxiety. Right. Anxiety. When there's a gulf between the felt emotional states that are arising, as we've already found, sometimes way before our thought, 
and the story of who I should be, when they diverge, we become anxious. We become concerned that other people will see the parts of ourselves, the jealousy, the envy, the lack of confidence, the anger, or the sadness that we've compartmentalized or completely repressed. And if we keep on repressing the felt experience, then we will avail ourselves of increasingly extreme attempts to repress our felt experience. We will avail ourselves of substances, drugs, alcohol. We will seek out uh, numbing process behaviors like watching hours and hours of Netflix, addictions to Tinder or Facebook or Instagram or Amazon. Anything to keep the true self at bay. And it's amazing how people so promote the self-concept on Facebook. Look, I am popular. See here, I am at a party. And people are laughing at a joke I'm saying. And look, I'm adventurous. Here's an image of me in front of a famous location. <laughs> so we bifurcate ourselves. We promote what we continue. You can see this process in action. Just look at anybody's Facebook page and you will see the self-concept wailing away. Even the complaints and the political diatribes is the self-concept right there before your eyes. And the part that, that nobody wants to see and do a post, uh, <laughs> it's Tuesday, I don't want to get out of bed. Fuck if I hate my job. <laughs> Here's me miserable. Nobody does that. <laughs> <laughs> because nobody wants the repressed felt experience, the part of the felt experience that is challenging to be witnessed. In fact, what I would like to note is that actually sometimes the emotions that trigger anxiety can even be positive emotions. So, for instance, in a family system where a child, every time it started to feel confident or happy or relaxed, then invariably the parents would, or one parent, or something bad would happen. Can then later on in life, when they get a compliment, can start to feel anxious. Because allowing themselves to feel a sense of uh, esteem might be associated with times where there was abandonment or rejection or shaming that followed. Sometimes children associate, um, can associate any emotion with a, uh, an unfortunate change in one's relational status and then in the future they will repress that emotion or that feeling in the belief that if they repress the feeling then the bad outcomes won't happen. I know actually many people who um, just can't allow themselves to feel relaxed because in their childhood when they, they started to feel relaxed and comfortable, that's when the shit really hit the fan. So when they get good news in life, 
or news that something seems then, they don't know how to handle it. And allowing themselves to feel relaxed feels, creates anxiety because that's allowing themselves to feel an emotion or state of being that's been associated with trauma or disappointment. So, um, really, the anxiety can cover up any impulse or any emotion associated with trauma or rejection or social disconnection. The actual nature of the emotion doesn't matter so much as the associations that are attached to that state of being. So any emotion that's been tagged as leading to caregiver abandonment or shaming in a schoolyard or ridicule by a teacher or judgment in a culture can be, no matter how healthy those impulses or emotions, can create anxiety. And it's simply the cause of the anxiety is essentially the attempt to withhold from being expressed or refelt, something that's entirely natural and spontaneous. In fact, it, Dan Wegner in his work showed that it creates what's, anxiety is what's called cognitive overload. It's the attempt by the left hemisphere of the brain to keep out an entirely natural, important emotion that really needs to be felt. If we've cut off our anger or our sadness or our fear or our joy or our ease, those are natural states that really have important messages and are helping us survive. But if we believe that those natural states of being will lead to rejection or shaming, then we'll try to push it down. And it's that pushing it down, that repression, that creates anxiety. Anxiety is not an emotion. Anxiety is a reaction to emotions. It's a, it's a actually, anxiety, there's four kinds of anxiety. There's, um, the first anxiety we have is annihilation anxiety, which is what children have when they're first born. They overwhelm the feeling that anything could kill them. Then the second anxiety we have is separation anxiety. When annihilation anxiety is relieved by the mother or the caregiver that protects the baby, then the baby no longer becomes worried, so much worried about being killed by something. It worries that the mother will, be, will detach or go away. But the most dominant human, emotion, human anxiety is what's known as neurotic anxiety. It's the fear that some natural impulse that we've been concealing will express itself and lead to social rejection. So it's not, anxiety is not the emotion itself. Anxiety is a reaction to, it's a suppression. It's a form of, a, it's a, essentially it's a uh, defense <coughs> mechanism. It's part, Freud called anxiety signal anxiety because he, he said it's a signal that the repressed is returning. And so it doesn't matter what the repressed is, whatever form of repression will arise, whatever we repress, once it returns, it's, it, the signal is the anxiety. Anxiety is the, oh, I'm feeling something I don't want to feel. I've got to do something to make it go away. I've got to make this feeling, this embodied state, not be known. So it's kind of like the mask that you peel it back and whatever you find, that's what you have to deal with. Right. The anxiety is the feeling of peeling off that mask. It's the 
fear that other people will not like what they see. It's, the, it's that anxiety of, no, I've got to keep that mask on. No, I've got to take it off. That creates the tension, the mental agitation, the jumpiness. It's essentially, anxiety is that moment when you realize you can't keep something from being seen. You don't want others to see it, but you have that also that sense that they're seeing it already. Or B, if you try to keep it unseen, it'll tear you apart. You'll go nuts. That people have anxiety and most commonly in social settings. Because that's where we're most likely to have to withhold something. I'm going to read you just quickly one of my heroes, Carl Rogers, who's the pretty much, along with Freud and Winnicott, considered to be one of the most dominant and influential psychologists of the 20th century, and the founder of American uh, uh, therapeutic process. Here's Carl Rogers. See if you can find something similar in what we're talking about tonight. This is Carl Rogers writing in 1951 in his famous book, Client-Centered Therapy. As a result of interactions with other people, we develop a structure of self, an organized concept of who the I or the me should be. Emotion, meanwhile, facilitates the actual maintenance and enhancement of the organism itself. So he's saying we have the two different we have the concept of the self based on our interactions and with people, and then we have the actual emotions, which are just about keeping us alive and happy and connected. Psychological health exists when all visceral experiences of the organism can be assimilated into the concept of self. But psychological maladjustment exists when one denies awareness of their sensory and visceral experiences, which consequently are not organized into their sense of self. So when we, uh, we begin to push out of our story of who we are, self-concept, the pesky emotions that we don't believe other people will approve of, this creates tension. Any experience which is inconsistent with our organization of self, our self-concept, will be perceived as a threat. And the more threats there are, the more rigidly one's self-structure will organize and protect itself. In other words, we'll avail ourselves of addiction. We'll do anything to keep other people from seeing the truth, including avoidance coping. If we really are scared of social settings, we will avoid them. When the individual, on the other hand, perceives and accepts into their self-structure all of her sensory experiences, all of her visceral experiences, then she will become more understanding of herself and more understanding of others as well. In other words, when we see people act out the very impulses and feelings that we repress to get love and popularity, we'll hate those people. <laughs> There's nothing more irritating than seeing somebody act out an emotion or a quality that we had to suppress to survive our family systems or to stay afloat in our jobs or in our peer groups. 
So he goes on finally to conclude that the only way to maintain psychological health is a what he calls a continuing reevaluation process, which means we constantly have to check in with what our actual spontaneous feelings are and integrate them rather than ignore them. So if there are feelings that are saying, I really, really am, am unhappy in my job, and even though it's scary to consider quitting one's job or looking for another job, that message needs to be taken into serious consideration, felt, and expressed at the very least. To ignore it as inconvenient is to essentially create more anxiety in our lives. Rogers says that the only way we can do this is by practicing unconditional positive regard, which means we have to greet the emotions in ourselves and others that are difficult and which we think are unlovable, not with disgust, not with uh, inconvenience, or not with a sense of, oh, I can't believe I don't want to visit my parents. Who am I? How could I be that way? but to feel those feelings and to acknowledge them and to, at the very least, even if we don't perhaps let them make our decisions, we at least integrate them into the process. Generally, anyway, even if we don't, they will wind up in there anyway. The reason why people have back and forth stalemates in life where they can't make a decision is because they don't know how to integrate their felt experience into logical, rational decision-making. They try to do everything logically. And according to the great neuroscientist Antonio Damasio, if we try to make decisions without integrating what he refers to feelings as somatic markers, if we try to do it, we will constantly get stuck because so many decisions in life do not have rational choices. Who you go out with, where you live, what you're going to eat for dinner, Guess what? Those are not rational decisions. Those are emotional ones. But if we don't know how to inculcate and involve and integrate our emotional lives, our emotional felt experiences in, what will happen is we'll try to represent them through thought, and that doesn't work. So tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to have an insight practice, which I'm going to leave, which is going to reconnect us with those pesky, unwanted feelings uh, that lie beneath anxiety, the feelings that don't fit in our self-concept. And instead of pushing them away, we're going to open our hearts to them and invite them to be seen and felt and to be owned and honored. Now, if you were all in retreat, after this meditation, what I would do is have you all break into groups of four, and then I would leave this practice where one by one in the groups of four I'd ask you each to share with each other what is the one thing about, the one feeling or impulse about that you have that you don't want other people to see. So you would have to begin the process of disclosing. <laughs> disclosing after feeling the unwanted feelings, disclosing is the second great tool that diminishes anxiety. There was a study of people who 
had a fear of speaking in public. And by the way, that, according to surveys, is uh, people fear speaking in public more than they fear death. <laughs> and they found that the single tool that is the most successful, and you probably heard them all, People say, imagine everybody naked. No, I'm not doing that right now. <laughs> or uh, make eye contact with one person. But actually, the single most effective emotion uh, integration, regulation, and anxiety reduction tool when you have to speak in public is simply to get up and in front of people simply say the magic words, wow, I'm really nervous right now. When you acknowledge your fear, the anxiety of having to conceal it goes away. And because you're no longer withholding or suppressing the actual felt experience, the anxiety <coughs> begins to dissipate. Guess what? If you review your life of all the times when you had a great sense of relief, it was because you acknowledged something that you were concealing from other people. You finally found a friend and you finally acknowledged the unwanted experience, the difficult impulse, the emotion that you uh, didn't want other people to see. I think one of the great cathartic moments of recent day was um, this wonderful episode on the show Louie. I hope some of you have watched that. So in the show, it's thinly based on Louis's life. He's got, like he does in real life, he has two children on the show. And the two children are acting like brats, really self-entitled brats. And when they turn their back on him, he goes like this. <laughs> he gives them both the finger and you could feel the weight off of millions of parents' shoulders <laughs> as somebody finally expressed the fact that to be a parent means that sometimes you can't stand your children. I don't have kids, but I'm assuming that's the case. In fact, human beings are allowed to have all kinds of emotions that don't fit the social norm. And while nobody is saying that we should become exceptionally authentic in workplaces where it will just lead to odd looks, <laughs> at the beginning of the week, if somebody says, how was your weekend? And you respond by saying, waves of grief. <laughs> I felt the... I've been suppressing my feelings about that last breakup, but I saw my ex and it triggered me and I felt the pain in my, the hollowness in my chest, which signaled the loss. Your um, co-workers might not know how to handle that. So we pick and choose the places. In fact, the, uh, the evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar suggests that there's only five or six people out of the 150 people that our brains are set up to know. He postulates that human brains have their size and complexity so that we can know 150 people, but only five or six of them, he says, are used for actual emotion regulation, where you say, oh boy, 
sometimes my partner drives me so crazy, they're so demanding, or they never do this, or I'm, uh, or when we say about our parents, oh, I know I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be happy seeing them over the holidays, but I'd rather slip my wrists. <laughs> Just the place where the people to whom we can say that which is socially and culturally shunned is the absolute key to reducing anxiety. Again, anxiety is what steps in when the felt experience is suppressed and has no outlet. It's like the steam building up in, the, in plumbing pipes. So if you want to reduce anxiety in your life, you start by connecting with it, acknowledging it, feeling it, and then disclosing it. So that's the talk. Let's do it. And closing the eyes, I'm take a moment to just put whatever, hopefully not great degree of effort, is required simply to establish a sustainable balance and really all that means is just keep your head from floating or drooping in front of your chest. Just stopping the tendency to slouch will be just enough effort that it will help not only prevent neck pain, upper back pain, but it will also just that little bit of effort can help focus and keep the mind in a good uh, relationship with the body. So we'll take three breaths in unison to just begin our practice with each other. So take a full in-breath through the nose and lift your shoulders if you like. It's up to you, but lift if you'd like so that you're trying to touch your ears with your shoulders and you're holding them up and then as you breathe out through the mouth, a long, slow out breath and the shoulders drop down. And then if it feels appropriate, just gently pull them a little bit back to open up your chest. But that's, it's entirely up to what feels right for you. So the second in-breath, gently tuck in the belly, making it taut, holding in the abdomen. And then long, smooth out breath through the mouth and softening the belly, releasing any of that uh, built-up tightness. And for the third breath, squinching the toes, the fists, the buttocks, and especially all the muscles in the face. Make a really ugly, pinched face that you just can't even imagine how pinched it would look. And then as you breathe out, Soften the muscles in the face, relax the jaw, and um, invite the eyes to settle behind the eyelids when they do uh, it makes it easier to be present when the eyes aren't bouncing about. And so let's take an overview of the body just for a moment and just with the question, what can I do to make myself feel more comfortable? If your clothes are too tight, if your legs are folded awkwardly, 
just really get a position that feels sustainable. And if during the meditation you're really uncomfortable and you have to move, that's okay. You can move. Just do it in a way that has enough forethought that to not make sound that will disrupt your neighbor's practice. So if you do have to move, just ask yourself first, how can I move without making sounds of shuffling? So we'll start out our practice with um, a standard concentration. Concentration meditation can be accomplished in numerous ways. The most familiar probably will be awareness of the breath. And all that requires is simply finding an area of your body where you can clearly observe the sensations of the body breathing. For many people, it might either be air entering the tip of the nose or the chest muscles expanding and contracting or abdominal muscles or perhaps even the shoulders. There's no right or wrong answer. Just wherever you feel the breath in your body, bring your awareness there. And at first, it's often very useful to employ a counting strategy which is very simple. You simply um, think one on the in-breath, and think two as you breathe out, then think three as you breathe in, and think four as you breathe out. But when you reach five, the next out-breath will be four. So we're counting from one to five and back down with one, three, and five always on the in-breath. And just keep counting from one to five and back down. If you don't like working with the breath, that's okay. You could simply listen to the sounds. This is a wonderful room for hearing sounds. Also, you can note the feelings of contact sensations with clothing and the cushion and even the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. So all those are contact sensations. We just maintain awareness of them. Two other concentration practices are you could have a very simple phrase you repeat with each in-breath or out-breath. It might be, I love you, keep going, or may I be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. May all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. Finally, the Buddha also recommended what he called a nimitta practice, which is visualizing a very simple object like a red circle or a blue square, essentially a colored shape, and then slowly 
in the mind's eye where you're holding this shape, make it grow larger in shape until eventually the color subsumes your entire consciousness. It spreads beyond the body to a limitless field of color. It's, of course, very normal and common and natural for the mind to chase after exciting thoughts, the attempt to plan everything in the future, or memory of interesting events from the past. Meanwhile, simply developing a settled mind might not seem as interesting to one's attention and so 
to train it to stay present, which has endless benefits, both mental and physical, but to train it requires a lot of kindness, patience. Try not to use any self-judgment. That's just another form of what we call the self-concept. It's exactly what we don't want to be doing in meditation is any form of criticism or judgment of ourselves. So no matter how many times the mind wanders off or feels sleepy or whatever the experience is, just acknowledge the experience and never under any condition or situation judge your practice. Every time you wake up to the fact that the mind has drifted away, just gently Bring it back to the present time sensation, breath or otherwise. If anything, feeling a sense of esteem that you're practicing, which is not easy, despite how many rewards it has. So at this point, we're going to move into the inside practice. So you can let go of the object you've been working with to develop concentration, settle the mind. Again, just make sure that you're sitting in a comfortable way. 
And then bring to mind a situation in life where you feel either anxious or the presence of feelings or impulses that you don't want other people to see. For example, on a date when you want to seem relaxed and funny, but you actually feel nervous and self-conscious. Or at a family gathering where you want to seem polite and interested, but there might also be the presence of feelings of anger or disappointment. The co-worker to whom we smile when we feel put upon. There are numerous situations in life where what is dictated by so-called decorum will contradict with our natural human emotional impulses. So bring to mind any situation that feels resonant the more anxious or uncomfortable the greater the reward for the practice. So visualizing this situation, ask the part of the mind that judges and self-criticizes and maintains all the shoulds to step aside, thank it for all the work it does, how it lets us at times get through difficult situations, but ask the self-critic, the inner shoulds to step aside and just see if you can connect with that wounded or upset inner child that is beneath all of these hidden, concealed beneath the anxiety, the discomfort, that simply wants its feelings and impulses to be attended to, known, observed, felt. What are the ungainly, abandoned feelings that we don't want others to see, can we turn to those feelings as a mother would to a child and just give it some form of loving attention that's welcoming. I care about you. I care about all of my needs, 
all of my feelings, all of my emotions. I care about my sadness, my anger, my fear, my loneliness, my boredom. I care about my feelings of rejection. Perhaps some of these emotions are wrapped up in difficult, painful experiences in the past. Family rejections. So it's so crucial to reconnect and create a safe inner place where we can feel in the body those feelings which we've disowned. And then, not in an adult voice, but in the voice that we wished we heard when we were so young and needing support and love, an unconditional positive acceptance. In that kind of a gentle voice, I care about you. I accept you. I won't turn my back on you. Loving the neediest, most awkward, most frightened, most angry, most disappointed parts of ourselves. Ending the tendency to turn away from our pain. Reclaiming every emotion and feeling and impulse. So at this point, bring into your mind an image of yourself, and we'll end the meditation with just repeating the phrase, I love you, keep going, I love you, keep going, I love you, keep going. can be an image of yourself from any age. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. And when you're ready, you can slowly open your eyes and look at the ground in front of you. Just take in the light and color and see if you can maintain awareness of the felt 
body where these emotional experience is most primarily known. Integrating sight into a much richer, more embodied awareness. And whenever you're ready, you can look around the room. <coughs> 